This is John. I'm really excited for this episode today. What you are going to hear is my interview with Kyla Schuller, who is Assistant Professor of Women's and Gender Studies at Rutgers University in New Brunswick. We're going to be talking about her new book, The Biopolitics of Feeling, Race, Sex, and Science in the 19th Century, which came out in late 2017 from Duke University Press. Um, this is a really fascinating book on many different levels. I think it speaks to a lot of conversations that we've had on the podcast before and pushes them in really uh, generative and really kind of critical and incisive new directions. This is also a book that is this really kind of magisterial assembling of a ton of different theoretical and archival materials and frameworks. Um, in the course of the interview, you're going to hear us talk about kind of some of the key uh, concepts and frames for Schiller's book, um, namely impression, impressibility, and sentiment. Um, and she's going to kind of situate these both within various scholarly discourses, philosophical discourses, but also in terms of the archival work digging into um, 19th century race science in the U.S., 19th century evolutionary science, um, kind of early gynecology, um, bio, what she calls biophilanthropy, a lot of different sites and archives that are informing these kinds of broad theoretical conversations um, that Schiller is generating in the book. Um, in addition, in the uh, course of the interview, we will hear some about the ways that uh, these concerns with impressibility kind of authorize or narrate or uh, enact a sort of kind of race-making, racial science, civilizational science, um, how that is itself connected to early forms of uh, sex differentiation. And we'll also talk a lot about um, what Schiller will refer to as race as a spatio-temporal framework. We'll also hear about her work in the book on um, figure like Francis Harper and W.B. Du Bois. And kind of from there, the conversation and the interview sort of spools out into this broader discussion about race and colonialism and biopolitics, about the ongoing uh, usefulness, or maybe not, of kind of Foucauldian frameworks of biopolitics. We talk some about uh, feminist new materialism, and at the end we kind of hear um, Schiller's thoughts on the kind of um, burgeoning, at least in some areas, discourses on epigenetics. Um, this book was kind of an absolute um, kind of brilliant read, and I was really happy to have this conversation with Kyle Schiller, and uh, we here at the Always Ready Podcast hope you enjoy the interview. I'm now joined by Kyla Schiller, Assistant Professor of Women's and Gender Studies at Rutgers University, New Brunswick, and author of The Biopolitics of Feeling. Kyla, thank you so much for joining us on the Always Already podcast. Thank you for having me, John. Yeah, so I kind of want to ask a somewhat maybe broader and more processual question to start, and that is that one of the really, really impressive things about this book, and there are many of those, is the way that you're weaving together 
multiple different theoretical discourses and multiple different kinds of archival material. So I'm just wondering maybe if you can open by speaking a little bit uh, about what it felt like to work on this book and specifically what it felt like to engage in so many different kind of sites and theoretical discourses. Yeah, thank you. Um, I mean, overwhelming is the main, <laughs> the main answer. Um, but also it, that process just took a long time. Um, and I have to say now that the book is done and I'm starting to be able to see it as an object that exists in the world, right? Like not just something that's like part of my private mm-hmm. <laughs> pleasure and trial and tribulation. Uh, I think the thing that I'm happiest about is how, how well the archival you know, in part archival method, but then theoretical analysis merged together. Um, like how cohesive that cohesive it actually turns out. Um, because it, you know, it didn't feel like that while writing it, of course. Um, so it started like most first books do these days as my dissertation. And I was trained in a really interdisciplinary literature department that was very open to looking at non-literary texts as your main sources. Uh, but that project was looking at the intersections of sentimentalism and science uh, across a bunch of different sites. Um, and it made the argument that this had had um, ended up with, with um, developing a, the, a proto-eugenic framework um, that then was later more fully realized in the 20th century. Um, but it was mostly, in other words, a historical argument and a historical like developmental argument I wasn't really engaging in any of the broader theoretical debates about new materialism or vitalism or biopolitics. I was more kind of reckoning with the fact of we've been, um, as cultural critics especially, um, we've been over overemphasizing the, the idea of Darwinian evolution as, as dominating since the 1860s and as sort of enshrining this nature red and, and tooth is, uh, nature red and tooth and claw kind of formulation in like Tennyson's famous poem. Uh, but then instead actually we've been deeply invested in this idea of evolution as plasticity and improvement um, directed by the civilized. And so I was really tracing, I was really involved in tracing out the historical question um, and trying to find um, less covered topics for, uh, in, in, to think about Darwinian evolution, you know, when, you know, which is why I knew that I wanted to have a black feminist theory chapter because um, I, saw that, I saw that as really engaged in these conversations about evolution and, and heredity, even though it's not necessarily typically seen as part of that conversation. Um, but it really wasn't until I then moved into a gender studies department, you know, at Rutgers, I had a postdoc there first and then a job. Um, and I just got immersed in a different set of questions, you know, about about affect, um, new materialism happened, <laughs> you know, and this much broader interest in science studies happened. Um, and then I started figuring out how I wanted to speak to a broader group of readers and how this really precise set of analyses of late 19th century U.S. culture and mid-19th century U.S. culture could actually be used to, you know, sort of zoom out and speak to these broader debates about biopolitics and affect and vitalism and, and agency. Uh, but I didn't see any of that when I wrote um, most of the, the, the first draft of most of the chapters. 
Yeah, I mean, it definitely does speak to those broader audiences and speak to those broader um, kind of theoretical debates. And um, before we get into those, I'm hoping maybe you can contextualize for the audience two really key concepts uh, for the book. And the first of these is kind of the dual concept of impression and impressibility. Yeah. And particularly the way that you're distinguishing that from a term like sensation or sensation sensibility or affect or affectivity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. So, you know, impression is one of those words that we've all read and maybe used ourselves yeah. every day <laughs> over and over and over again. And so I was kind of stunned to realize how insufficiently we've theorized that concept. You know, it doesn't actually even usually appear in the index of a book, even if that mm-hmm. book is about, say, John Locke, <laughs> um, <laughs> or you know, philosophy of mind, or other other cate- other areas that are fundament- fundamentally dependent on this concept. So, the impression I see, um, really taking it from Locke, uh, Locke in particular, developed it um, as this, and also the 18th century. And early 19th century um, scientists who are studying sensation. And they see impression as the act of an object coming into contact, um, you know, with a, with a sense, with a sensory um, organ or, or a sensory nerve um, of a living mammal. And then the kind of reaction that that has in the body. So it's, it's very, it's the, it's the closest to sensation. Um, and mm-hmm. some theorists like Locke, he essentially identifies it as sensation, but it does potentially have a two part process. Um, because David Hume then building on Locke said, well, an impression is also the idea you have in your mind after you have a mm-hmm. physical sensation. Um, so it kind of, combines both these ideas of a physical sensation and an emotional reaction, um, which is interesting to me in particular because um, because some of the 18th century physiologists theorized that emotional reaction to a physical impression as sentiment. So right. that really opened up for me how I could think about sentiment as this vast regulatory technology, um, fundamentally about... Uh, guiding and protecting and disciplining the way that the body interacts with the world. Because ideally, according to sentiment, one always intercedes after sensory impression with that emotional reflection. So that you're always um, sort of in control of what your body is, is receiving. Impressibility is a really specific concept, I think, um, to the 19th century. Um, and the biggest distinction actually is that I, I don't mean impressionability. So impressionability, which is a much more familiar term, that's the idea of being too, op- too open to impressions, too easily moved, um, too, you know, too easily swayed, potentially too emotional. Um, you know, it's a commonly charged against uh, women, African Americans, and to some degree, people who um, are typed as having non-normative, you know, erotic desires in the 19th century. Impressibility is different. Impressibility, I'm understanding as the capacity to be affected over time, and I see it as arising in the work of Jean Baptiste Lamarck. You know, our first evolutionary theorist, writing in the um, first decade of the 19th century, and for him, it's that process of 
of um, inherit, like it's it's a notion of inheritance before we had any idea of the gene or even even any other specific biological material that we understood to carry mm-hmm. hereditary information. Um, and the possibility is that that um, idea that what you experience on your sensory um, organs, if you if it happens repeatedly and habitually, that the body actually makes changes as a result because of that of of those sensations. So Lamarck built Locke's idea of the impression into actually an idea of how species change happens. That the things we do repeatedly create repeated impressions that actually create bodily modifications that then we pass on to the next generation. So impressibility is really about the capacity of progress and change and transformation, which of course can be either toward improvement or, or, or worsening, you know, depending on, on context. Right. And so kind of one other key term, you've already uh, touched on this a little bit, and that is that of sentimentalism. So I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if you can give for listeners that may not be um, incredibly kind of well-versed in the way that sentimentalism is used kind of an arc, say from Ann Douglas onward and mm-hmm. then how you are reworking and kind of reusing and thinking through the idea of sentimentalism. Yeah. So sentimentalism has a, a long history in literary criticism and feminist criticism in particular. So Anne Douglas absolutely is the, the first really important book um, that came out the same year that I did in 1977. <laughs> um, and she makes the argument that sentiment, which is this idea of that emotional feeling um, is the best guide to moral action. Um, so it's the you know dominant 19th century belief in that if we just um, had you know intimacy and sympathy for one another, um, that this could that if we let this direct our moral and political decisions, that this would create a good society. So the classic text is Uncle Tom's Cabin. You know, which uses this emotional affective appeal to the reader to try to um, get them to sympathize with the suffering of the enslaved. And the idea is that this kind of emotional reaction will create some more lasting change. Um, now, actually, I think at this precise moment, we have an amazing contemporary example of sentiment in the new season of Queer Eye, um, which mm-hmm. I kind of love and kind of am really troubled by. <laughs> but Queer Eye seems to be peak 2018 sentimentality. That's precisely this idea that some kind of emotional connection can create a larger social, political, and personal transformation. Um, yeah. But so Anne Douglas um, found this really problematic. Um, You know, she did an amazing, that book is amazing in general, but she especially did a great job of showing just how fully sentiment, sentimentality had gripped U.S. print culture, um, as well as U.S. religious tradition, um, especially in uh, the uh, sort of post second great awakening Protestant reform traditions in the U.S., um, and for her, this is a feminizing of culture that ruins culture and also mm. produces our first mass media. Um, and I think her argument that sentimentality is at the core of American pop culture, um, you know, it's visible in anything from the help to avatar to queer eye. Like we're still in this trajectory um, started in the 1840s and fifties. Um, and so what, and there's been a lot, of, a lot of debates in the last 30 years about sort of what are what is actually the nature of sentimental politics. Um, is it feminizing drivel like Ann Douglas had, um, or is its very traffic in the vernacular 
actually a progressive way of speaking to the heart of feminine political power, like Jane Tompkins argued in the early 90s. And then some of the people at the turn at the turn of the 21st century made some great arguments about sentiment involvement in in empire um, mm-hmm. and that um, while it may have been the political the language of political power of white women that doesn't therefore make it a you know anti-racist like <laughs> social justice cause the shift that I'm making is arguing that sentiment isn't just a politics it's also an epistemology and an ontology other people have certainly made the argument that it the sentiment is also an epistemology. Um, but the ontology argument is different. Um, and that's where I see it actually as, as being so connected to biopolitics to the degree that I want to want to call the dominant mode of 19th century biopower, you know, sentimental biopower. Um, mm-hmm. Because it is precisely about this fantasy that managing the feelings of a population, um, you can actually guide the the evolution of that population over time. Um, and so I see sentiment as operating both on the individual the level of individual discipline, you know, what, what like the kind of biopower that Foucault called discipline, um, sure. but then also at the species level of population, um, because it is so invested in this idea that the kinds of feelings and sensations and intimacies that you stimulate in the present, once done repeatedly, will actually form hereditary material and will actually be inherited for the next generation. So sentiment I'm arguing is actually working in a kind of scale of deep, deep time. It's not just working to mold the individual body. Right. I think that's a useful way to think about, I mean, kind of one of the central claims of the book, and that is that the kind of uh, juncture and unfolding of sentiment and impress impressibility um, becomes a kind of, I think you call it a civilizational race-making project mm-hmm. um, in the 19th century. So I'm wondering if you can maybe kind of, I, I know it's the central thread of the book and mm-hmm. one of them and perhaps really difficult to kind of be like, How's that in three minutes? Yeah. Kind of <laughs> an overview for the audience of the particular civilizational and race-making um, deployment of uh, sentiment. Yeah, thank you. And this was sort of one of the kernels of the book back when it was a dissertation um, of thinking of thinking about it. So if we if we understand impression and impressibility to be these overlooked central concepts in critical theory over at least the last 300 years, um, it opens up a way of understanding, um, corporeality, uh, as well as like individual, as well as social formation as having been conceived of as happening, um, through a process of impressions, you know, was, which is understood as a kind of like stamping into a text, you know, or a impression into a wax seal. So there is this kind of, uh, there's a sort of textual, basis, um, to the idea of the body at which, um, you are just accreting layer after layer of impressions over time. Um, so I understood this to, um, be a way of, of reconceiving how the racialized body is understood to form or how the body in general is understood to form. Um, because we've been, we've been sort of stuck for, 30 or 40 years in a framework of race understands racism to mean determinism. You know, mm-hmm. that like that race means we have these ideas of a bi- of biology as destiny <laughs> and a body is locked into a certain set of 
um, capacities and possibilities um, because of its racial identification. Um, I think that what's so useful about biopolitics and the way that Foucault locates um, biology to be one of the key, biology itself to be one of the key subjects of history and to understand the way that our bodies and lives were biologized as a key move of power in the 19th century is that, under, that it helps you understand actually how um, the body is embedded in time. And that's, and that's where racialization comes in. That racialization is actually a process of sorting out where different bodies are located um, in chronology and whether or not those bodies are understood to be embedded in time and therefore able to move forward or whether they're understood to be frozen in time and stuck. And so I look, I look at a text like Malthus, you know, mm-hmm. um, principal population, which many would, would agree that this is one of the most foundational texts of biopolitics. Um, you know, in the second half of that book, he says, basically, we're all, um, we all have a kind of animal nature, but that culture over time impresses into that nature and elevates it and transforms it into civilization. And this is an idea echoed by a lot of people, um, that proper impressions cultivate and civilize the body and add ever more layers of culture to the animal substrate that end up um, sort of transforming that body into a body of civilization instead of an animalized um, body condemned to primitivity. Um, and so I see, I see race as not being this determinist framework, but actually about a differential access to time um, and whether or not you can move forward through time. Um, and so that the civilized body is a palimpsest of impressions that have been accumulating for centuries and that still possesses the capacity for more impressions in the future. Whereas the racialized body, especially the black body, is seen as, as frozen um, and incapable of receiving more impressions and therefore of progressing. That's, I mean, that's one of the things that's really important about that for me, at least when reading, and you emphasize this a couple of different points in the book, is that that sort of understanding of race disrupts what you call kind of stagnant binaries of races, either biological and material or culturally or socially constructed. Yeah. So what is it about kind of your approach that enables you to rethink and kind of move beyond that stagnant binary? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Um, I think that 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 is precisely what I'm trying to do is to reconceive of space of race as a spatio-temporal framework, um, rather than one that exists in a um, a static moment in time. Um, in terms of method, I mean, I think that because the original kernel of the book started as a as wanting to understand the cultural politics of evolution in the 19th century, um, is that from the beginning I was I was asking questions about corporeality. Um, and I wanted to do that through sentiment and through science. Um, but especially I was trying to reckon with what, what does the arrival of evolutionary theory in the 19th century and not just Darwinian evolutionary theory, but especially Lamarckian evolutionary theory. What does this new arrival of the idea of, of the body as species and the body that, um, is embedded in time? Like, how does that, how does that shape our political processes? And especially how does that intersect with the rise of the modern forms of race and sex difference in the 19th century. Um, and I think that to historians of evolution, that's a, that's a relatively obvious move. Um, I just think that for a variety of reasons, uh, as critical race scholars, we haven't dug that deep into evolution, evolutionary theory, at least recently. 
Um, so it turned out that there was actually a lot of new things to be said um, by looking at some of these overlooked and yet just phenomenally popular ideas about differential evolution of races in, in the 19th century. Right. Now, you mentioned that briefly in that answer, but closely connected to kind of uh, impressibility as a race-making project is impressibility as a project of sexual differentiation vis-a-vis mm-hmm. -vis the different kind of access, differential access to time, differential access to civilization. That's a really, I think, useful way that you put it. So how um, how does that element kind of work its way through the book? Yeah. So the thing about a body that's impressible which means that it's capable of absorbing effects from all the sensations that it has is that that's a really precarious body. <laughs> and I think that one of the things that impressibility as the underlying logic of our modern ideas of race and civilization, what it really opens up is that it helps us understand um, that civilization and, and whiteness was conceived of as incredibly precarious um, and not as an individual rational subject in control of itself, um, you know, not the kind of self-possessive individual that we've been reading a long time, you know, out of, out of Locke and throughout our legal and yep. political frameworks. Um, but actually, even Locke himself says the body develops relationally. The mind develops as a result of its repeated impressions. So actually, our own individual development and self-possession is dependent on our constant management and regulation of what we come into contact with. Um, you know, our, our progress itself is dependent on what we experience from other people and in, in, in our environments. Um, and that's just incredibly precarious. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and so I, so my, my argument of looking at, especially 19th century evolutionary theory is that how race scientists in this period stabilized this the, this precarity of the body that can move forward in time is by um, breaking up impressibility and assigning it unevenly um, across whiteness. So these are the folks who are really, for the first time, codifying male and female as complete difference. Before the mid-19th century, there wasn't really an idea that sex is difference in physiology, anatomy, mentality and emotion. Um, it was mm -hmm. a more, a much more vague idea of difference and a kind of difference that often was understood to be um, different expressions of the same commonality. But in this period, you get the idea that the male and female are completely different in every element. Um, and it does so in a way that they could, they could, as I say, assign to women the liabilities of sentimentality that possibility of being too easily impressed, too easily moved, too easily affected, um, and that they would assign the men um, the position of a kind of rational justice and altruism. Um, but this only works according to a strict logic of heterosexuality um, and according to a framework when male and female are two bodies that were cleaved but understood to be re reunited in um, a kind of monogamous marriage situation. Um, so I think this is why sexuality and one of the reasons why sexuality in particular emerges as so central to biopower because it's what enables um the idea the, the fantasy of stabilizing the white male body and creating the liberal um self-possessed subject right i mean 
we don't have to go into this much further, but I mean, thinking about Locke there, right, that's fascinating in the way that to get to Locke's self-possessed individual and in like the second treatise on government, you have to uh, like transcend the impressible subject of his philosophy of mind or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. So, but to go in a slightly different direction, um, in the second chapter, you talk about Francis Harper as kind of generating a theory and practice of what you call black feminist biopolitics. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I was hoping you could kind of tell the listeners some about that, particularly the way that that comes as a, as an attempt to kind of contest uh, the exclusion of racialized bodies and particularly black bodies and particularly black women from access to rights or from recognition um, as human. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so that, that in part started because the very first chapter of this book that I wrote in the dissertation stage, which actually was my qualifying paper before that was the other chapter that, um, that we want to talk about, which is the Du Bois chapter um, and taking seriously his involvement in eugenics um, and, you know, in the early 2000s, that was kind of a dicey argument to make. There weren't, a, people were starting to make it, but people weren't all, all that happy about thinking about Du Bois as right. pro-eugenics and not like one of its, you know, uh, most uh, valiant uh, crit- uh, critics. Uh, and I, but I just was sort of, I was particularly invested in, in that, mo- in a model of science studies that understands um, black subjects to be producers um, as well as interlocutors in science. Um, and to do that also means opening up to a whole other set of political questions <laughs> um, that, that black intellectuals were wrestling with. Um, if we think of um, Du Bois or, or, or Francis Harper or other black feminists um, as not only people who were um, cast in the position of being victims of biopolitics, but also, um, intellectuals helping to conceive of some of the structures out of which biopolitics itself cohered um, in the period. Um, and so, for me, looking understanding biopolitics to be operating in the U.S. in this period in a sentimental fashion um, that's particularly about emotionally regulating um, the the experiences of the species body that really opened the door to thinking about how someone like Francis Harper was actually wrestling with these questions of biopolitics on this grand scale. Um, but I'm sorry, there was an element of your question that I'm forgetting right now. Um, um, specifically kind of how Harper uses what you call a black feminist biopolitics to contest kind of exclusion from rights more basically or exclusion from kind of access to recognition as a human. Yeah, so I so I argue that she's really in a position of arguing for a, a what I want to call a negotiated biopolitics, um, which is a position of biopolitics articulated by someone cast into a position of death. Um, so I'm certainly not ar- not arguing that it's an equivalent of say a Malthusian biopolitics. Sure. It, you know, it's quite explicitly a biopolitics of someone who's in a position of needing to defend their access to humanity. Um, but I argue she does so by really doubling down on the function of sentiment as a biopolitical technology. Um, and the way that sentiment especially was used by black women to argue that black, that, um, black women could cultivate the race, you know, could train and discipline and uplift, um, a, a, a black masses, which, which Harper will often, f- um, frame in terms of their, 
sleepiness and torpidity and sluggishness. You know, she uses all these analogies of like, we need to wake up the mass of black people um, and move them toward life. And by awakening their capacity for self-control, um, uh, self-reflection um, and other like, you know, very sentimental feelings, but also sentimental capacities of regulating that body and regulating its desire. Because the dominant understanding of blackness was that it was mired in sensation and that black people, black people could never develop the temporal um, act of reflecting on feelings, could never discipline sensation with sentiment. Um, and so the move that famously sentimental writers like Harper make of insisting on the capacity of black sentiment is actually a really, you know, foundational, massive argument about contesting the core concept of racial difference itself and saying everyone has the capacity to learn, um, to learn this, uh, this ability to later reflect on your sensations and to intercede in them and therefore to direct them toward beneficial growth. Right. And so then it seems to me that Du Bois in the fifth chapter of the book is engaged in a, at least kind of formally similar project. And for him, you know, you point out that there's this shift to what you call more uh, virulently anti-black biopolitics mm -hmm. around kind of the turn of the century. So how does Du Bois's relationship to eugenics kind of mark that sh a shift in biopolitics from the 19th to the early 20th century? Yeah, and I think that's key to the argument because I think Du Bois is actually one of the big transitional figures where we can see sentimental biopower shifting into um, a different kind of biopower that no longer believes that humans have control in shaping evolution. Um, so I like that you're asking questions about this chapter, actually, because as I said, this is where it started. And I was looking at Du Bois' Lamarckian read on eugenics, which is that Du Bois' interest in eugenics was definitely not ster you know, sterilization, definitely wasn't immigration restriction. Um, and it wasn't even um, so much about about promoting an increased birth rate among the fit. And those are the three most dominant kinds of Anglo-American eugenics in the 20th century. This is what we think we generally understand eugenics to mean. You know, this differential process of encouraging the fertility of some and limiting the fertility of others. But for Du Bois, it's more about um, cultivating who raises children, how they raise children, um, praising. It is in part about praising black families with high IQs and good education um, who have more children. But he also saw things like adoption as part of eugenic policies. Um, and I was curious about this, and which is you know, the question that started the book, which is what is this other tradition of eugenics and evolution that can be used for anti-racist purposes that Du Bois is drawing on? You know, what, what happened in the 19th century that led to Du Bois making these moves in the early 20th that looked so different from dominant Anglo-American eugenics? Um, and what that earlier period was, was this Lamarckian understanding of evolution that the more civilized you were, the more you could direct your impressions and therefore your evolution. Um, and so eugenics in the 19th century looked like things like off-reservation native boarding schools. The idea if you take an indigenous child, if, it, if, they're, when they're, if they're young enough, that if, they, if they're young enough, they still retain some impressibility. And you 
transform their experiences and sensations and teach them to emotionally reflect on their sensations, that this is how you will, um, whiten a population. And then I look in the, um, in the fourth chapter about how this is done with for 200,000 mostly Irish immigrant children as well, um, from the 1850s to the 1920s. And it's this idea that to upwardly evolve a population, you change who, makes their impressions of their children and in what environments they have those impressions. You take kids out of the tenements to the Lower East Side and you put them in farm families in the West. Um, and that will transform their hereditary material and therefore, and, and their habits and experiences and therefore their race, um, in this dominant framework. But then Du Bois is suddenly writing in a, in a context that started to disprove Lamarckian uh, inheritance. You have August Weissman in the 1880s chopping the tails of a bunch of mice and showing that the children of those mice still have tails, <laughs> even for over generations, um, as, as well as the beginnings of Mendelian genetics. And so suddenly people are saying, actually, we don't think so much anymore that repeated impressions and repeated experiences actually change hereditary material. Um, and instead you get the rise of genetic determinisms, which Du Bois is a really famous and vocal critic of. Mm. Um, but I argue that the way he contested these, this rise of genetic determinisms was actually by going back into the 19th century and reinterpreting some of the frameworks um, for a sort of po um, post-sentimental era. Although I hesitate, I want to take that back immediately now that I said that because <laughs> there is no post-sentimental era. Um, and right. it certainly wasn't a post-Lamarckian era because it didn't go away completely. And, um, and now we're, you know, re-entering re -entering a Lamarckian era now. Um, but there was a big shift in the belief of what, what hereditary material looked like and what was, how, whether or not it was possible to change hereditary material. So he kind of reconceives heredity from being a biological process to being a social process. Um, and this is what enables him to still kind of argue for a Lamarckian uplift framework. So his idea of uplift is very much rooted in notions of evolutionary change. He's just arguing that environment and social context shapes everything who we are. He's no longer trying to make a kind of biological transformation argument that the prior century would make. And this, this I argue is what leads him both to conceiving of birth control as a new kind of eugenics, just like many, many other feminists did from the 19 teens, 20s, 30s, and 40s. Um, but it also, I think, leads both him and Boaz toward a cultural framework of race. Um, that he's actually key in this larger process at this moment happening where biology is splitting from culture um, and race is starting to get understood as a, um, either a physical or a cultural phenomenon, no longer a sort of biocultural racial palimpsest, like in the prior period, even though of course the older forms are still subtending and informing the, the newer ones. Right. Um, to maybe kind of switch gears a little bit and kind of ask maybe some broader questions um, about the text and kind of relationship to various debates. I want to have a couple kind of questions about biopolitics because um, I was really interested in reading this book and kind of interested in thinking about like my own relationship to writing about in biopolitics. Mm -hmm. And 
um, kind of the effect that Alexander Wahalia's habeas viscous yeah. had on me and had on, I think, a lot of people that were interested in or wrote about or thought about biopolitics. Um, and so kind of one of, I think, to the, a polemical question. Actually, can I, I interrupt saw, for a second? Can I ask you yeah, of a course. little bit about what effect that text ha- had on you and your thinking? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, um, you know, I've <laughs> to put it kind of somewhat uh, polemically or something like that, it'd be that, you know, well, I'm not sure that Foucault or Agamben are like useful anymore. Like, why don't uh-huh. we just <laughs> kind of think about biopolitics as, as racializing assemblages? And, you know, it's never like quite that, you know, it's somewhat in jest, but right. um, I was hoping to kind of ask you about how you think about the ongoing importance or ongoing usefulness of Foucault and thinking about biopolitics, given the critique of him by Wahalia or giving the critique of him by someone like Ann Stoller mm-hmm. and kind of why you think it's necessary to continue to kind of rework and work through that Foucauldian framework of biopolitics. Yeah. Thank you for that question. I'm trying to figure out where, how to start. Um, a good, a lot of it is that I'm coming to this project as, as I've said, from a background of being, of reading a lot of 19th century evolutionary theory, um, and starting to, to really grapple with how much the idea of this new concept of being embedded in natural, you know, and geological time, not just a 5,000 year Christian time span of the earth, which was, you know, most generally embraced by Western thinkers up until the 1830s and 1840s. Um, that just, this just has this massive shift on how we understand, um, ourselves as, as beings. Um, and that race consolidates in this framework, um, where, to be racialized is to be, to be located, um, in, in the past, you know, as, as insufficiently evolved and not fully occupying the present moment. And so the way that those, you know, the Foucault books that were translated in the 21st century, society must be defended and security, territory and population in particular, you know, he also really looks at this development of the notion of, of a biological notion of race in the 19th century and how, um, the racialized are positioned as being in the past of the race. Um, you know, as someone, as a, as an expert in 19th century evolutionary theory and race, this just feels so 100% right to me, um, mm-hmm. that it sort of led me to a broader uh, reassessment of, of how Foucault is thinking, um, into, into, into making a kind of different argument than Stoller and Wahalia make, which is that actually this is a, an incredibly useful understanding of race. And I think that's in part because of the way that in Foucault, um, race is relational. It's not about prisoning individual bodies into, you know, um, uh, rigid biologies and therefore destinies is precisely about relatively assigning differential capacity across all bodies in space. Um, and certainly part of my argument of impressibility is that, you know, central to our notion of race and sex difference is, is differential capacity to be affected. Um, and that possibility of being affected is only ever conceivable relationally. Um, 
you know, like even the notion of affect, I argue, depends on the idea of debility as it's constitutive outside. The idea of being affected depends on other folks who cannot be affected um, in order to consolidate as it does across the 19th century. And so this broader understanding of how race is actually about, you know, differential assigning of worth and claims to life and the creation of disposable population for the utility of, you know, colonialism and capitalism um, feels really useful. What I want to add to that, of course, is arguing how sex difference is part of the work that race difference does. Um, mm-hmm. I'm arguing for a really particular kind of intersection of race and sex, um, in which that sex is understood, um, you know, to be to be a function of racial difference. Um, I don't I don't see that as a secondary effect, um, but I don't see it as an um, an equivalent one necessarily either. I see it as um, I see sex difference as operating as a function of racial difference, um, and I think just being able to understand how race works to to map across and to, across species time as well as across like colonial geographies is just really really helpful. Um, and I find the Agamben chapter in Wahelie, um spectacular. And I think I found that really liberating. <laughs> like, okay, I don't have to take on why I don't think Bios and Zoe is super useful for me. Sure. Um, because it is actually just replicating that biology culture split that I'm arguing is mm-hmm. one of the foundational moves of biopower. Um, yeah. But I will say that I do think that Wahelie's read of Foucauldian race as hybridity um, is less convincing to me. Because I think what's precisely so useful, useful about Foucault's concept of race is he's conceiving it on a populational level, not on a level of individual identity. And, and hybridity to me as a concept is about individual bodies, not mm-hmm. about regulating populations across, um, across geographic and geological space and time. Um, and that's what I find so useful about Foucault. Yeah, I mean, I guess kind of one of the things that I was thinking about with regards to that particular part of Foucault is that is that one of the other shifts that you're making is that, you know, oftentimes the relational population level races in Foucault, to me at least, and I think, you know, this is a diff- another part of Wahelia's critique, are that they're essentially uh, kind of intra-European, even though they're all these extra-European mm-hmm. Um, kind of race making and population making um, articulations of power and violence and, and domination, and so it strikes me then that what you're doing is taking you know the the the, the those crucial elements from Foucault and then moving him into other contexts. And the kind of related way that I was thinking about that in regards to your book is that you kind of um, I thought of it as like de-exceptionalizing mm-hmm. the 20th and 21st centuries yeah. as the key sites of biopower. Yeah, absolutely. And and so I was really kind of just into this attempt to re-periodize uh, biopower and say that, no, actually, the 19th century United States and race science in the 19th century in the U.S. are crucial sites for biopower. So I'm wondering then how broadly can we kind of uh, think through your approach in that reperiodization of biopower? Is it useful to go look, um, you know, to like follow Mbembe and look at uh, kind of biopower and the way you're thinking about biopower in various global and colonial contexts? Is it useful to kind of think even further back temporally or historically in the U.S. to think about biopower during slavery and so on and so forth? Yeah. So a lot of what, I'm arguing about biopower is that it's building on these colonial hierarchies of the civilized and the primitive. 
and that this is the foundational split between those bodies whose life should be fostered, the civilized, and those bodies whose whose only utility is in their disposability, um, meaning you know the the so called primitive and savage, you know, and this is a colonial hierarchy that had been consolidating. Um, for hundreds of years across a range of European empires, um, you know, and Pacific American and African sites. Uh, and so I do think that, um, that, that this take on, on biopower is a sort of not exceptionalizing, you know, the um, 20th century Nazi Germany, um, or even not understanding eugenics as only being a 20th century genetics phenomenon, right. but could also be rooted in 19th century notions of heredity. Like you're not going to be able to do that before 1830 because there wasn't a notion of biological heredity before 1830. Um, but there certainly were other frameworks for, for breeding uh, and for inheritance. They just weren't located specifically as a biological substance. Um, so yes, I do think that we will, pr- that it will be difficult to disentangle uh, biopolitics from colonialism writ large um, once we have more, more detailed frameworks, you know? Um, yeah. And, you know, and I, I would love to, I would love to say, say for example, example to see how impressibility was at work um, in the acquisition of the U S West by the, by the United States um, after 1848. Um, and you know, that's another example from 19th century U S but I think that it's a more explicitly colonial framework um, then why well, is I'm looking at settler colonialism in the, in the, um, West and Midwest and Midwest. Um, but looking at how its effects on, on Irish kids, um, not say on Mexican American kids, um, or, or other members of population. Um, but I think that, I think that'd be a productive framework. Yeah. Um, to kind of even pursue some of these questions a little bit further, I'm interested in how you think about your work in this book in relation to, say, Afro-pessimist analyses of anti-Blackness on a kind of ontological Mm -hmm. level. And when I was thinking about this while reading, one possibility that occurred to me is that we might think about the uh, deployments of biopower that you're analyzing as kind of... uh, anti-black ontology making sort of project. Does that kind of resonate Mm -hmm. at all with you? Yeah, it absolutely does. Um, Because part of, part of what I'm arguing is that this, you know, this idea of differentiating between material, like bodily substance with capacity and bodily substance that lacks capacity, that that's at the heart of racial difference and that blackness and whiteness are always on the opposite poles. Um, and the indigeneity and um, Asian identity and um, Muslim, you know, the 19th century Muslim was was more or less a racial category. Um, yeah, that the that these groups occupy somewhere in the middle of the of these two poles. Um, and so, I do th- I do think that um, I'm in part offering a sort of precise rendering about how notions of of affect and feeling, not only notions of reason, were sent, um, and ideas of corporeality consolidating across a range of different kinds of intellectual production, you know, um, race science, but also fiction, also gynecology, um, et cetera, um, were conceiving of ontology as the fundamental grounds of, um, of difference and therefore of, 
claims to life, you know, and access, access, access to power. Um, but I do, I, I would say that also that as a, as somebody who's very, you know, historically minded and working with a lot of archival sources that I do see constant shifts and nuances in these ontologies that I think are, Mm -hmm. are really important. Um, and I think that the way that the 19th century combines biology and culture and the 20th century tries to split them. Um, I think that those are key to the effects and operation of biopower. Um, and that could be a place of, of difference with some Afro-pessimist thinkers um, who tend to be less interested in looking at subtle variations at different times and yeah. places in uh, anti-Black ontologies. Yeah. Um, so this kind of next question is like very much where the political theory training okay. in me comes out. And that's Let's see if I, can, about, if I can do this. Yeah. <laughs> like I, 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 based on the book, like I have zero doubts. Um, and it's, you know, it's a question about the state. And I'm particularly interested in hearing more about how you think sentiment works to align or to bind individuals with the state or to cause identification with it in the sense of the kind of uh, like analytical level at which the state is connected, given that um, kind of much of the work of technologies of power that you analyze in the book are in what are generally understood to be non-state spheres, right. like churches mm-hmm. or reform movements or orphan homes mm-hmm. or kind of what you call biophilanthropy. So kind of to where do those operations of power kind of work to connect people back to the state? Yeah, um, definitely one of the things that happens when you look at the 19th century instead of the 20th is that you're looking at um, forms of national belonging uh, and forms of biopower that are not happening through form, through the state necessarily. <laughs> They're happening right. in a lot of private spaces um, that then get later taken up by uh, as tasks of the state um, in the early, you know, late 19th and early 20th century. Um, and eugenics is, is another perfect example because it goes from being this idea that you can, you can mod- modulate um, the, ev- the development of racialized children um, by putting them in private homes. Um, you know, even, even thinking of orphanages as being too institutional, but putting them in private homes instead where individual, you know, domestic mores will transform the material um, to, to a 20th century idea about like state run coerced sterilization. <laughs> it completely changes the vector of, um, the vector of change and of who who is orchestrating that change. And so I, I think that sentiment can help us understand like governmentality. You know, Foucault is so good about identifying how biopower works because we feel individually um, constructed by it as well. You know, it, it creates our own subjectivity even as we're subjected to power. Um, but I think that when you look at sentimental biopower, you can also understand of just how fully um, biopower has long cultivated this idea of emotional attachment and identification to our uh, existence as biological beings and to a notion of political power um, that is trying to shape our capacities and potentials um, as individuals and as, and as a species. So this is, in some ways, it's sort of doing um, 
in a different way of doing a, a Lauren Berlant project on sentiment. We know mm-hmm. she's certainly similarly looking at sentiment as a process of attachment identification with the state. She's looking at sentiment in aesthetic forms. I'm looking at sentiment as a corporeal discourse across the sciences, across different institutional sites, as well as in aesthetic forms. Um, but understanding in general power to be, you know, ultimately not treating us primarily as rational subjects. I think the bow power knows full well <laughs> that we are not primarily rational subjects, um, that we are affective and emotional beings. And those are, that is one of its key um, access points of asking us to reconceive the way that we relate to each other um, as actually being, um, about how our individual lives actualize the accumulation over centuries of layers of cultural and biological difference as a result of who who your families were, where they lived, what they did. Um, race is actually about like this centuries and centuries and centuries long process of whether or not um, your body uh, maintains potential or not. Um, and that that kind of cultivation um, and harnessing of our individual powers of belief and transformation and change and the idea that we're embedded in time and that kind of even kind of quintessentially American belief in the possibility of transformation and makeover, um, that these mm-hmm. all are actually wrapped up with the, uh, eventually with a biopolitical notion of state power, um, that, it, that it is the task of the state to enable the continual and ongoing progressive transformation of whiteness. Absolutely. I mean, in that sense, it's like a very useful, I mean, kind of genealogy or like precursors to state power and also a different way of demonstrating kind of like the classic feminist political theory point that actually the distinction itself between the public and the private mm-hmm. is a political act that obscures the operation of power yeah, in any number of absolutely. ways. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, to kind of shift gears, maybe two more questions, because um, I know we're running out of time. And first is um, if you could talk us some about how your work um, rethinks or critiques kind of uh, femil- feminist new materialism or feminist science studies because it strikes me as kind of a critique of the new mm-hmm. in the name yeah. of say feminist new materialism, but also a critique of the potential kind of implicit um, endorsement of kind of white narratives of materiality um, that may be written into some of some discourses in feminist new materials. Yeah, exactly. So, so the weird thing about having read a lot of vitalist race science about the 19th century before 2007 <laughs> is that when even really started writing about matter, I was like, hmm, I've seen all this before. Only sure. being used to describe whiteness, and now these idea these ideas that are actually foundational to our modern notion of race difference about what kind of life matters are now getting transported onto the non-human, which some ways and politically, I, politically, I love that move. You know, um, Mm -hmm. I certainly don't want to live in a world where human rationality is understood to trump all other kinds of being. Um, on the other hand, I think we're still really struggling with what are the political implications of ascribing agency and vitality outside the human, you know, um, how can this help ongoing feminist anti-racist political struggles? Um, and I think that question is, is still pretty 
often unclear. Um, and part of that is because um, much of the neo-materialist move, I would argue, is actually just an extension of the ontology of whiteness to non-human groups rather than an interrogating and dismantling of the of the ontology of whiteness. Um, and, and again, one of the key frameworks here is that plasticity determinism binary. Uh, you know, one of the main arguments of the book is that that relative assigning, that, that assigning of the capacities of matter as plastic or determinist, that is itself the foundational move of biopower. Doesn't matter whether you're claiming that that substance is plastic or determinist. <laughs> they are both equally involved in differentially um, ranking and uh, and therefore deciding on a body's relative um, claim to life. And so saying that matter is plastic um, doesn't feel all that different to me than saying that um, matter has determinist capacities that, that render it inert and, on, and unable of um, occupying a kind of, of being. Right. And I mean, and maybe actually a, a related question then is how your work in this book helps us critically think about all of the discourse about epigenetics mm-hmm. uh, and recently. And, you know, you, earlier you mentioned that, you know, we're like kind of re-entering a Lamarckian era. And yeah. I'm, 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 I'm assuming that that's what that was potentially yeah. a reference to. Absolutely. And so you, you touch on this briefly in the epilogue, but maybe if you could expand a bit on how the work that you're doing here helps us think about epigenetics and race, helps us think about epigenetics and, biopol- and biopower. Yeah. Well, part of it is that, much like you noted of my critique of the new materialisms is like, well, maybe not so new. And then therefore it's a problem to sell, to celebrate it as new instead of mm-hmm. to interrogate, um, you know, the own genealogy of, of that position. Um, it's also similar with the kind of epigenetics, um, in which it's not, you know, it's not a new turning to the idea that genetic material is, is, is not fixed, um, but instead it's precisely a kind of a reawakening of this older moment of biopower, um, which of course is different. You know, I'm not arguing that it's identical, um, mm-hmm. but it is, a, it is, as you're noting with this transition to this question, it is another example of this plasticity determinism dualism, like being at the heart of biopower. But I'm especially struck about how the language used to talk used to talk about how epigenetics works. You know, that's the process of um, you know, say 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 a mater- say because of trauma, a maternal gene imprints on your gene and therefore prevents its expression. Therefore your gene isn't running the RNA synthesis process as it would ordinarily, because the maternal gene um, has imprinted upon it. Um, it's really striking to you that we're still using that language of impression <laughs> to think yeah. about gen- genetic functioning, you know, hereditary influence, you know, um, literally 200 years after Lamarck now, um, we're still in this, in this framework from Plato and Aristotle through Locke of, um, of the impression and the body's differential capacity to receive impressions is how growth and development happens. Um, so I think, you know, I sort of have a personally, my, my, I have a little bit of an ambivalent take on it because I think, I think potentially epigenetics does help us break out of 
the determinist culture versus biology mode that we're in the 20th century. And I find that mode just especially unhelpful. And like new materialists, I find a lot of social construction theory increasingly unhelpful um, because it is so rooted in a cultural only framework. And I think just on a basic level, because race and racism is actually a process of differentially embedding bodies in time, I don't think we can even begin to understand the effects of race and racism if we only look at one generation. I think we have to look in a, in a broader level, not just historically, but even just, but even also like how our bodies like hold and carry these traumas, you know, um, yeah. like we certainly know how that works on an individual level, you know, like repressed emotion is often a key factor in chronic illness. I think that the idea of opening back up that question, what does experience of racism, how does that write itself into the body? I think that's a necessary thing we have to do, even though it feels um, scary and threatening and like it could reopen a lot of ugly, ugly doors. Um, I think we have to do it. I think we have to do it really carefully. That said, I don't think the epigenetic science are the, is a place to do it necessarily. <laughs> uh, and I really like the work of historian of science, Sarah Richardson, who's been looking at epigenetics for the last decade and emphasizing how so much that science is actually just doubling down on idea of sex difference. And it's actually Mm. trying to further saddle the female body with complete responsibility of reproduction. And if anything, epigenetics is now saying, guess what? Female fertility happens from the moment of concept of the mother's conception (laughs) to the moment that they reproduce. Um, Whereas we could just as easily take epigenetics to mean let's actually open the question for the first time of how sperm development affects fetal development Mm -hmm. (laughs) and later human development. Um, But we're not going there. Instead, epigenetics is kind of is doubling down on the idea of the female body being saddled with reproduction across time, uh, across, across its whole, its whole lifespan. Um, and that doesn't, that seems like we are just going to further continue this framework of bio, of biopolitics by impression and sex difference. We've been in for 150 years. Yeah. Um, thank you. That's incredibly helpful, uh, to think about that. And, um, I don't want to take up too much of your time. So before we close, I'm wondering if there's anything, I mean, this book is, is, is brilliant and there's a lot going on in it. So I'm wondering if there's anything you and I did not have the chance to talk about that you'd like the audience to hear about. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, well, actually the thing we did talk about is I think is the chapter that most will find most interesting, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is the the chapter called vaginal impressions. Um, mm-hmm. And I have to say, I think that the thing that I feel most excited about sharing this book with the world um, is that because of this process I was doing of, of matching theory with archival research um, is that I was able to find some less sort of less obvious and less known examples of yeah. biopower um, and especially sentimental biopower Um you know, it's a part of reconceiving biopower along sentimental lines is that I'm trying to open up a whole range of different subjects and agents and producers and areas as part of biopower that we haven't otherwise thought of. Um, and for me, the most exciting moment was really finding this text by one of the very first licensed female physicians 
um, Dr. Mary Walker, who herself is super interesting. Um, you know, she was a union spy. She bragged about getting arrested for cross cross dressing many times. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a really and is, vocal, and is on the cover of the book. She's on the cover of the book, exactly. Really vocal abolitionist. Um, but she wrote this 100 page, 120 page treatise. It's basically an argument for the vitalist capacities of the vagina, um, and it's certainly part of creating a notion of sex difference. But her and Elizabeth Blackwell, you know, famously the first woman doctor who certainly I grew up reading children's books about her that were very sanitized, you know, and very like she's a morally upstanding woman who wanted to, you know, help save the country, all of which is true. Um, And yet she also had this deep investment and well, in one at 19th century eugenics, but also in the special unique capacities of, of the vagina. And they really, the vagina of the white woman, right? The only mm-hmm. proper vagina that they understood, which is the vagina in a body that's achieved full mental and physical sex differentiation from men. Um, and so per- personally, as a, you know, as a, as a scholar involved in, queer theory and queer studies, um, it was, it's been, it was very exciting and mind blowing to realize that this framework of a body, the body of progress, like the body at the center of Western epistemology, not actually being the self-possessed rational subject, but instead being a body that's penetrable, impressible, open. Mm -hmm. And that these doctors went all the way as to say, well, actually the body that most does that is, the white woman's body because of her, the powers of her vagina (laughs) was was really mind blowing to find in the 1860s and 1870s. Um, And then the way that these two figures go even further and they say, it's not just white femaleness that's located in the vagina, but actual feminist subjectivity, they root in the vitalist capacities of the vagina. Um, I hope is a, is an interesting and helpful contribution to trans studies and trans theory of thinking about just how long our ideas of feminist, the feminist subject has been rooted in an in idea of set of sex binary and right. of so-called female genitalia. You know, the, the so-called like pussy hat problem in feminism, mm-hmm. you know, it's not, it doesn't just go back to second wave feminism. It's actually at least a 150 year old discourse. Some of our, some of our first U S feminists, are saying feminism is possible because of the vitalist capacities of the vagina. Uh, I think it, for me, I find it really illuminating of why it's been so, why, um, why feminism is in one of the most hostile places for trans women uh, of all social spaces, for example. Yeah, no, thank you. I'm really, I'm really appreciate you um, bringing that up and making that point. Um, Kind of last question for the podcast and what sorts of things are you uh, currently thinking about and working on? Yeah. um, I, I'm, I'm realizing that I don't want to let go of this question of impressibility. (laughs) I, um, that I still want to see what kind of political and conceptual, ontological theoretical work that it's doing. And I'm especially interested in how we see it all over the work of John Money and the other folks inventing the concept of gender Uh in the 1950s and 60s. Um, So I, you know, I don't flag this very explicitly. It's kind of buried in a footnote, but I don't use the word gender in the entire book because I take seriously. Oh, I, I found that footnote I so. I am so glad you did. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that you found it, <laughs> and that you, and that you appreciate it. Um, 
you know, I would, if I, if I had to do it over, I would, I would put, put it in the, in the main text of the intro more explicitly. Um, I just really, I've really been inspired by the trans studies work that asks us to think of gender as an invention of 1950s biopower. Um, and that, that actually clarifying its specific cold war sort of biotechnology uses is really helpful in understanding what political work that that term does and doesn't do for us. Oh, and so I'm writing, I'm working on a project now. Um, I have funding from the Stanford Humanities Center this year to start a book called Gender Studies After Gender. Um, that is, the first part is looking at um, the invention of the concept of gender and how these older ideas of impressibility and race difference and differential capacity to be affected actually is codifying gender via behavioral science. Mm-hmm. In the 1950s and 60s, um, and then the second half, kind of, kind of reopening up the question of how do we reconceive of the sex-gender binary, like in the wake of the ontological turn. You know, oh, mm-hmm. it's clearly not doing as much good anymore. <laughs> I don't think most feminist researchers even believe in it, and yet we're still often teaching it because we haven't really thoroughly replaced the sex-gender binary with a with a. Um, with a different framework. We know, you know, since Butler, how sex is affected by culture. Yes. But we haven't really asked the reverse. Um, and that's the question I want to, I want to open up, although I'm still very trepidatious about it. To reopen a biocultural notion of, of sex and gender difference. All right. That sounds um, incredibly fascinating and also incredibly important. Um, But Kyla Schiller, thank you so much for joining us on the Always Already podcast. Thanks for having me, John. It was a delight. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Always Already podcast, which is created by James Pataglioni Jr., Emily Crandall, Rachel Brown, John McMahon, and B. Altman. Visit our website, alwaysalreadypodcast.wordpress.com. Email us, alwaysalreadypodcast.gmail.com. Send us text you'd like us to discuss, ideas for interviews, advice questions to answer, dreams to analyze, and uh, anything else that is on your mind. Follow us on Twitter at AlwaysAlreadyOn. Like us on Facebook. Subscribe to our RSS feed. Uh, rate us on the podcast uh, app of your choice. We would really appreciate that. You can go to Patreon.com slash AlwaysAlreadyPodcast to contribute to the Always Already Podcast. Uh, the idea is that we are hoping to uh, generate some more transcripts of our episodes for uh, just accessibility reasons, for uh, reasons that just kind of making the podcast more usable in more different formats or people. But to do that, uh, we need your support. So you can go to patreon.com slash always already podcast. And on that note, we would like to thank our current patrons and the always already circle of trust to those of you in the circle of trust. You can uh, send us an email and you get an enhanced shout out um, whenever you so, so, so are inclined. We'd like to thank Diane, Ariel, Kristen, Catherine, and Matthew. In the Tumblr BFF from Canada tier, we'd like to thank Alex. In the Friend of the Podcast tier, we'd like to thank Eleanor, Daniel, and Rachel. And in the not uh, not giving us uh, a category, but giving us money, we'd like to thank Bunny and Joe. You heard Desiring Machines from Bad Infinity to open the show. You're listening to Landslide, covered by our very own B. Altman right now. 
that's all for now. Uh, but we hope to be back with you with another episode in the not too distant future. We do realize that episodes are coming uh, more intermittently, and we hope to be able to uh, change that sometime soon. But uh, alas, life prevails. But in the meantime, have an always already day.